Did you just get a sext? They happen very frequently these days. <laughs> you moved out of sexting age just as sexting became a thing. You, you were like the people who missed the 60s. I uh, prefer the real thing. <laughs> Texting? <laughs> well done, you! Hello, Jews et al. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I am Mark Oppenheimer, your host, joined as ever by your other host, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi, happy post-Labor Day. Happy PLD hope, to you. Hope, hope no one's wearing white pants under this table. I was just saying, you're wearing white linen, and it's the day Is after she Labor Day. cream linen? And uh, calling in from Cape Cod, senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Sabah al-Hirat min Provincetown al-Quds. You know, I was watching a dude walk around with white pants yesterday. I was like, brother, you got about eight hours. I'm watching the clock. <laughs> I feel like in Cape Cod, white seersucker all year round. All year round. I've never been, but and that's our, how I imagine it. Our Jewish guest this week, though in a sense, Liel calling in from the Cape is our Jewish guest. But our, our Jewish guest in studio will be Willard Spiegelman. He has a new book out about being an old dude, about being an alter cocker. And our Gentile of the week is former Vogue employee, RJ Hernandez, who's going to walk us through uh, the catacombs of New York Fashion Week, which is about to start. It, it, it's starting imminently. I know that all of you know that. You're all, you're just, you're on tenterhooks waiting for Fashion Week. But speaking of fashion, I just saw, um, I just saw War Dogs with mm-hmm. Jonah Hill. And I believe he rocks some sort of like white linen caftans and just the sort of tent-like moo-moo effect of his just white billowing linen caftans. I found it, I found it strangely beautiful. Does that, does that make me weird? No, I think I think it's it's nice. That that is not what makes you weird. Okay, can you but wear ha- a white linen caftan after Labor Day if you're like an arms dealer in the Middle East? <laughs> if you're a Sephardic a, arms dealer, yeah. If, if from yeah. From do you think Miami? the same rule applies in like you know the desert? <laughs> Wait, is Jonah Hill playing Sephardic? So this is well, look. We might as well get into this before we get into anything important or meaningful. My understanding is that the arms dealers in War Dogs, which is a, a true, based on a true story about these two high school buddies from Miami who end up making a killing in uh, uh, after nine eleven in in war stuff. Um, my understanding is that one of them that they're both of Sephardic origin, and one of them is like. Wait, Liel, you knew this. One of them is, is Shmuley Botech's nephew or something? One of them is Shmuley Botech's nephew, and the other is the son of the Aish rabbi who invented the Kotel camp. What's Kotel camp? It's the camera that shows you the Western Wall 24-7 oh, on the, the Kotel camp, wow. Yeah. I was Kotel camp, and I thought that was like... Kotel, Kotel camp is a great idea. Is this how we bring peace to the Middle East, the Kotel camp? We bring all kids from all religions to the Kotel for three weeks. You solve it, or we knock down this wall. You drop them there and leave them. Uh, so these guys had real yichas. Like these guys are these are major Jewish machers who ruined their lives with with arms deals gone wrong. I mean, think of what they would have accomplished if they hadn't gotten into the. It's it, nice to see Miles Teller and uh, Jonah Hill playing like nice Jewish boys gone somewhat rogue. Gone somewhat, gone somewhat rogue. And I, I like to see them both playing Sephardic. That's big. That's big for our community. The totally. It's because we don't want to be Ashkenormative, as Stephanie. Has but been we accused. are we are having like Ashkenazi. Guy. I mean, is Miles speaking Teller of, Jewish? Probably. Speaking I don't know of what, being. Ashkenormative. I, I have to tell you, so in light of, of our last show's conversation, uh, I was sitting the other day in Cape Cod by the pool, drinking New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and watching women's tennis. And I thought to myself, you know, hey, screw whatever I told Thomas Chatterton Williams. I'm the whitest person in America right now. <laughs> You've really made it. This is amazing. Judaism out. Yeah. Congregationalism in. 
I just want to say mad props to the costume designer of War Dogs who knew to give Jonah Hill a big, massive gold high around his neck. Like, yeah, like he would wear that. He would wear He would be that guy. Did he get it for his bar mitzvah, do you think? Or did he get his like monogram ring? For oh, his I love mitzvah? the monogram ring. The monogram ring. Funny story about the monogram ring. When I was in high school, I went to high school with very, very few Jews and even fewer sort of Jewish identified Jews. We were all kind of passing. And one guy who wasn't passing, his name was Adam. I won't give his last name. He was from a Boston suburb and he wore a monogram ring. And he told somebody, I think a girl he was dating, that it was Jewish custom that at your bar mitzvah you got a gold monogram pinky ring. And so she then went around and told people this. She's like, oh, isn't it cool? Like Jews all get gold monogram pinky rings. And I, and you were the one who was like, "Hey guys!" I was so mortified. I was future like, religion writer here, was, but also it felt like like she had he had basically outed all of us. As you get like, a monogram ring in the teeth of a gentile yeah, boy. Yeah, it doesn't it was, sound good. It was like he had, he had basically stuck a target on our back that said "gauche tacky people who don't belong." Gold, like gold everywhere. Speaking of gauche, Mark Oppenheimer, did you pay for the movie ticket yesterday? <laughs> I'm still in trouble with our with our listeners for having sneaked into a You're movie. still in trouble with God. With God. Um, I paid for – well, I actually had – it's funny you should ask. I had a, a rain check coupon from a movie that um, – where the, the projector had broken that I tried to take my kids to see. So I have a whole bunch of these freebies oh they give us. So actually, I didn't pay for this one either. It's going to be a busy Yom Kippur for you. It's a lot of repenting. A little news to the Jews. Wait, before I get to the news Jews, I just want to say this was a tough week for me. Three of the kids – are at public school. And then Anna, the littlest one, starts preschool this week. Only two oh. days a week. But like this is the this is the week that all of the daughters are off on their own. The wings have been spread. They're fluttering about. Do you have the sads? Uh, yes. Oh, it's just, the dad sads? Not as bad as when I first dropped her back off at kindergarten when I literally had to like rush out the door so she wouldn't see me cry. But it's still sad. It's still sad. I have to ask, how's JJ doing? JJ is still very bloated, but seems happy as could be. I mean, she's on some meds. Wait, JJ's um, a she? Yeah. This whole time? Yeah. Wow. JJ's on that. some meds, and um, her belly's very big, but I don't think the tumor's growing. She still has a lot of oomph. She has a little trouble getting up the stairs, but she still goes to growl at dogs that pass by. So thank you for asking. JJ's going to be sick until sweeps when we measure our ratings. <laughs> and then we're going to have And then we'll see. <laughs> a slow but steady four-week decline to the end of sweeps month. In November. Yeah, I, th- I think our listeners should uh, determine JJ. <laughs> what happens fate. to JJ? Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll have a we'll have a, a poll, a Facebook poll, a Twitter poll. Choose right. JJ's adventure. A little news of the Jews. Um, Gene Wilder died. Jerry Heller, manager of NWA, died. Anthony Weiner's career died. There was a lot of death this week. We mourn for all of them. Could you imagine Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor, Jerry Heller, and Eazy-E having lunch in heaven? Oh what a beautiful God. thing that They're is. They're at like the Cantor's Deli of heaven. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> what NWA song is playing in the background, Liel? Could you work on that? I think a, a secret Easy e rendition of Come With Me and You'll See to a Place of Pure Imagination. I watched Willy Wonka last week. It's oh, very it's sad. The best thing in the world. I feel like Stir Crazy is the classic. It's the one everyone has to go rewatch. I hereby sentence you to serve 125 years in the custody of the Commissioner of what? the Department of Corrections. What? 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 Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> we didn't do it. There's a misunderstanding. Um, Christian pastor Bishop Wayne Jackson gave a tallest to Donald Trump last week saying as he handed it over, this is a prayer shawl straight from Israel. Now, first of all, I have to call BS on the straight from Israel. <laughs> like, I think he bought it at Cohen's Judaica on, um, I don't know, somewhere in Gross Point. 
I mean, straight from Israel, like, did it originate in Israel? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't think it was, I don't think it was like hot off of the El Al flight. Um, but also this was something that upset a lot of Jews. Uh, like this was mass, massive cultural appropriation. The crazy thing is like, so he went to, you know, like an African-American church to sort of reach out to a sector of the, of the voting community that he has, you know, insulted and denigrated, et cetera, oh, et cetera. Sector, right. So this was supposed to be his big like mea culpa, I'm with you. But then this whole like other thing happened where the pastor put a talus on him and then like the Jews are up in arms now. So it's like, I don't even know what if his and, visit was considered a And Donald a Trump took that talus and when I'm president, I'm going to build a wall in the synagogue and I'm going to make the women pay for it. And they're Believe like, no, we've already me, done that. Already done the women that. would pay for the mechitza. <laughs> I just wonder, like, was this was this a massive plan cooked up behind the scenes by some Trump advisor like I know as we're getting our black vote up from 2% to 3% we can also win back a few Jews if you just throw a talus on him just and you know what just say something in Spanish you like this is this was ethnic day for the Trump campaign and now he's back to rallies with a bunch of his his Trumpkins it is quite possible that they do not know the difference between the blacks and the Jews I mean I would not have asked. I was like uh, these people of color what are they? they they're the ones with the talus right with the tortillas right the tortillas, uh, around every corner yeah. the taco trucks and the Okay, Mark, you are the religion guy. You need to explain this to me. Why would a church want, like, he, there was a lot of, like, Jewish inflected stuff going on there. He also gave him a copy of, like, some Hebrew Bible that's a Christian Hebrew Bible. Like a, like yeah, a, like the Christians read on the Hebrew Bible. So is this just an evangelical church that loves Israel? Yeah, like, what was going is, on there? This is, like, the the black uh, version of the, the white Christian Zionist, John Hagee's people. Like, there's a huge part of the evangelical world that just, like, they're going to prove they're more Christian than thou by loving the Jews more than now. And they and then of course a lot of, you know, a lot of Jewish people like they're having their support because like, you know, some of our people want to go off to war in the Middle East at every opportunity. They love going off to war in the Middle East. But of course their plan for the end times is that we all have to convert or die. So but this is the black inflected uh version of that nonsense. Okay. I bet Trump didn't even know. WTF. But then he's like, oh, you know, this he's is like what cool my, shawl. Shawl. Oh, I think my son in law has one of these. <laughs> like I wonder what Jared Kushner thinks. We'll never know what he thinks about anything, but like, because he must have been there or, or at least close by. I When I think about Jared Kushner, I always think about that line someone someone once had about Al Gore when they said like why he couldn't really be a, a have any gravitas as a presidential candidate. And they said something like, when you've put your manhood in escrow for eight years, it's really difficult to check it back out. I feel like Jared Kushner has, his manhood is escrowed to his father-in-law. Yep. Um the Times of Israel has reported that more than 100 inmates in a Scottish prison have signed up to receive kosher meals, despite the fact that, according to government statistics, there were only nine Jewish prisoners in all of Scottish jails in 2013-14. An official at Glenochel Prison in Clackmanshire. God, I, yeah, definitely no Jews there. God, there are definitely no Jews at Glenochel Prison in Clackmanshire said that they had all claimed that they had converted to Judaism. Now, we've talked about this before, the whole kosher meal plan thing. This and is amazing. Prisoners, yeah. <laughs> like, they will do basically anything to get better food. So, But Mark, you're, you're being really cruel. I mean, imagine these Scottish prisoners. I mean, that's a culture that eats congealed blood for breakfast. <laughs> Can you imagine these people like, I, laddie, you know what's better than what we're eating? Everything. Everything. Can the fish in a jar. Bring it on. It's better than... I, I guess I like that. I like that accent. Um, Thank you. I think the funniest thing is who's making the Scottish kosher prison food because they like have to import it from somewhere because they obviously don't have a kosher kitchen in the in the jail. 
And it, I just like, I like the idea that there's like some Hamlet somewhere where that's just like producing all the kosher prison meals. Right. They have a guy who's become, he's become a shocker. Yeah. He's like slaughtering, he's slaughtering sheep with kosher knives. Look, right. I just do think that they should make them work for it. And they should make them really go through a serious, they should send in like Lubavitchers and Aisha Torah people. They're, like these guys should be coming out with the felt black yarmulkes yeah. ready to do the Lord's work if they want the kosher meal. They like send Rabbi Macbethowitz to uh, take That's care like of Cindy and Orange. She knew everything black. though. Totally. I haven't seen season three yet, so don't. No spoilers. Don't let me know if she sticks with it or if she if she reverts. Just a prisoner. Don't let me be a prisoner. I'm just a prisoner. Don't let me be a prisoner. You made me a prisoner. And you made me love. Take the shackles of hell and go away. Cause I love you so much now. You, you, you. Our guest Jew this week is Willard Spiegelman. Willard teaches at Southern Methodist University, SMU, or as he calls it, SNMU. The New York Times Magazine once featured Willard as one of America's best-dressed professors. It's not something he writes about in his new book, Senior Moments, Looking Back, Looking Ahead, which comes out September 13th, and it's about growing old. Yes? No. Well, yes. Everything else I said was true, right, Willard? <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, Okay. It's not really about growing old. It's about having become old. That is, I didn't set out to write a book about being old, but I became old. And since I write, my age managed to creep into the writing. So you're 72. I am not. I'm 71. Sorry, I did not mean to prematurely age. You're 70. Well, you, you don't look a day over 68. I, so. I want to say, like, you look you're young. Like, so, I was expecting sort of like a little more... A little more stooping. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, you're writing well, this book about, like, oh, Here's the backstory. Old. Willard and I have been friends for, for 20 years, and in all of that time, he hasn't aged a day. He's sort of famous in his peer group of literary critics and men who wear white shirts no matter the weather as being sort of preternaturally youthful. And he's finally written a book, having spent a career writing books about romantic poetry, he's written a book about... It's not life secrets of being happy and well at any age, but it's kind of, they're going to market it that way. I noticed, and I've been told by my literary agent, that it's a very bad thing for authors to go to Amazon to check their rankings. But on Sunday, I had an op-ed piece in The Times, my uh, first appearance as a writer rather than a male model in The New York Times. And it was about something I think I believe in, which is that of all the places in the country for a senior person to retire to, Manhattan is the best. I am delighted, I will be delighted to get rid of my car. I'm happy with the indignities of the subway most of the time. Sunday, I walked 15 miles in the city. An average day, I walked seven miles. So as long as I'm still ambulatory, the city is great. And even when you're not and require services, it's easy to get them in the city. Anyway, that was that was the piece that I wrote in the Times. And as a result of that, I believe I have been, as they say, trending. Ooh. Anyway, I had these various essays. And what happened, a thread began to appear. And I was asked to do this by my editor, the redoubtable Jonathan Galassi at Farrah Strauss Giroux. He said, make it more about you and make it more about growing old. 
And so the thread that wove itself through the book was really my life. Now, I have never thought of writing a memoir, and this is hardly a memoir in any conventional sense, but it does go from birth to death. The opening line of the book is, I believe, (laughs) it all started, like so much else, with my mother. So she appears in the beginning. And the chapters of the book go from the first, which is called Talk, about how I came into the world in a very voluble Jewish family where everybody talked at once. And the last chapter is called Quiet. It was originally called Silence. So we begin our lives with a scream, and then we go off into the eternal silence. That's the scope of my life. That's the scope of everybody's life. Do you want to hear the story about Jews talking? Yes. My still-living Aunt Wilma, who is now 92, was a young naval war bride in 1944. She was stationed with her husband, I don't know where, and they had Sunday dinner one day with the admiral and his wife at the admiral's house. And she wrote back or phoned her mother, and she said, we had dinner at the admiral's yesterday. The most remarkable thing happened. My grandmother wondered what this could have been. My aunt said, Only one person spoke at a time. (laughs) This was not plausible in the circles in which I grew up. Everybody was talking all the time about everything. Well, not about everything, certainly not about anything intellectual or about their inner lives, but they were all gabbing. You know, this is a book where religion pops up a little. You know, you went to Williams College at a time when it was fairly waspy, waspier than it is now, probably. Maybe less waspy than it is now, but it's not more Jewish. No, I think that's right. But And then you went to Harvard for graduate school at a time when, I don't know, it was probably Jew, Jewish, but not as Jewy as it may be now. Anyway, the question I was going to ask was, how did you carry your Judaism? Were you, was it something you were proud of, ashamed of, indifferent to? This is an interesting cultural question. And uh, somebody wrote a book about Jews at Williams. And the same book could have been written about many small colleges and some of the Ivy League. And the first Jews were admitted to Williams in the late 19th century. And they were something like, they weren't pariahs, they were curiosities. But when I was a kid, and when I was a young man, this is in the 60s, religion, all religion, was something that was a private matter. And the Jews at Williams, of whom, just by coincidence, every year there was the same percentage, the between same 10%. 11 or 12 percent, and 11 or 12 percent Catholics, there was a Jewish students' organization, and they had services. I was an atheist. I am an atheist. I did not go to services, but there was such a thing. Well, what happened about 20 years later, after I got out, a bunch of alumni decided they wanted a Jewish center. I don't think it's officially a Hillel house, but let's say it's like that. It's a Jew house. It's a that's your word, not mine. Jude house. It's, they call it Jude house. No, it's not a Jew house. It's a Jewish house. Got it. Um, and so they have all of the things that these houses would have. And the resistance to this came apparently, according to friends of mine on the faculty, from people of my generation. From Jews? The Jews who were, I don't want to say we were passing, we were just quiet about it. <laughs> so as you know, religion on college campuses now is a much more volatile and much more public thing than it was, well, you don't know what it was like 40 years ago, 50 years ago, but it was a quiet thing. And that's a kind of holdover from Anglicanism. So the people who wanted the the Jewish house, would would it be you wanted it for, for you almost, or do you want it for the students who are there now? Is it more just like marking, you know, putting a flag down? I don't know. You'd have to talk to people at the college. 
Um, and all colleges, I mean, now that there are uh, Islamic houses or safe spaces, and now that there are tensions between Jews and Muslims on college campuses, as there are everywhere, I don't know how this is playing out on college campuses. I don't think it's playing out as nicely as uh, somebody who has no religion would like it to play out. Now that you've retired from teaching, now you can talk freely about about your, the student tree. You taught at SNMU for 40 years? 45. 45. What changed about them? What did you think of the students when you ended versus when you began? The students have become much more, on paper, um, qualified. Board scores are up. Grades are up. The students are programmed in ways that were not particularly visible 45 years ago when I went or 50 years ago when I was in college. Uh, there's little room for fun. The students are driven to succeed, and they're driven to succeed vocationally. They're not as experimental as they were 45 years ago. In many ways, they're much smarter because SMU has risen in the ranks. Do you like them more or less? Yes, I like them more because I am a person given to liking people and because uh, as you get older, you become more amused by, if you're a sane and sanguine person, the young amuse you rather than irritate you. So I look at them and their ways and their idiotic fashions. What do you see on campus that you just hate? Everybody is working out all the time and everybody's wearing workout clothes all the time. Baseball caps worn backwards. Mm. Why are they being worn backwards? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> But here's an interesting question. You want, you want a Jew answer to that? Sure. <laughs> we'll always take a Jew answer if there's one on offering. There have always been very few Jews at SMU. At a school called Southern Methodist University. One day after class, two students were talking to me, and they said, could we ask you a personal question? And I said, sure, go ahead. And they said, what are you exactly? <laughs> and I knew the, the area, the, the, the what area, because we had been talking about religious subjects. What are you exactly? Not what is your sexuality or anything. What, what are you? And I said, well, I'm an atheist, of course. And then I paused, and then it came to me. And I said, I'm a Jewish atheist. Judaism is the religion I have rejected. The others are all equally unimaginable to me. And they were impressed. I mean, students are impressed because, like anybody who has a degree in English literature, I know theology, I know the Old Testament, I know the New Testament. You can't be a professor of literature without knowing these things. And in many cases, I certainly knew a great deal about theology, Christian as well as Hebrew, uh, more about it than any of my so-called believing Christian professing students. So they thought I was something of a weirdo, or at least an anomaly, for knowing all of this stuff but not believing in it. Very seldom, on maybe three or four occasions, have students tried to proselytize to me, and I just cut them off. You didn't, you didn't play along for a little? I always play along for a little while. I like the idea that they think that they're, what, like 18, 19, and they can like change your mind or convince you of anything? Well, there are two things about that. One, 18-year-olds are ignorant, but also idealistic. And two, if you are a proselytizer for anything, it is your job to go out and spread the word. And the more difficult the prey, the better it is to do it. Right. If they'd reeled in a, uh, you know, a baby boomer, gay Jew atheist, that mm -hmm. would have been... That's extra points. That's like straight shot to heaven. That's a that's the, the fast that's elevator That's like a, a condo in heaven. You get a condo. The um, You've written a book called Senior Moments. Um, it includes discussion of growing older. Are you afraid of dying? 
I mean, I'm petrified what, personally. What good would that do? Well, I'm, nevertheless. You, we have no choice in the matter. Nevertheless. I have no fear of it. I don't want it to happen. And I don't re- – here we are knocking on wood. Uh, I have never been ill. I mean, I don't know what bodily and serious bodily infirmity means. So I find death implausible. <laughs> I'm sure it's likely. No, I guess it's certain. But I just don't – I really don't believe it. That was the way I felt until my sister had cancer, mm-hmm. which as you know, she survived and, and is thriving. But that was the – I literally didn't believe it. In my bones, I thought I intellectually I knew it was going to happen. That's right. But I simply couldn't fathom it. That's right. And, and then but I I'm could. 30 years older than you and yeah. I still can't. I mean I've lost friends. I've lost parents. Of course, everybody dies. I don't want to end on a grim note. I don't want to surprise anybody with that fact. But we're all going to die. We're all, we're all going to get there sooner or later. If you could offer, and this is a horrible and insulting question, so kindly forgive me, but if you could offer the young, those about to to, to launch uh, into this adventure, um, three or four or five uh, pellets of wisdom, what would they be? I have four principles of behavior. I can't say I honor them all the time, but I try to honor them all the time. We'll go up the list. Number four, never let a student pay for lunch unless the student happens to be very, very rich. (laughs) Yes, they have a last name you recognize. That's right. Number three, never give advice unless asked. And even when asked, make sure that the person you are talking to is capable of hearing that advice. Number two, try never to judge other people because... Everybody, the, the greatest line in my favorite movie of all time, Renoir's The Rules of the Game, there is one terrible thing in the world, and that is everybody has his reasons. Or to pardon everything is to understand everything. And that speaks to a kind of compassion. And the first order, this is not of behavior, but of belief, is the great motto from the Latin poet Horace, nil admirari, don't let anything surprise you. Willard Spiegelman, the book drops, as the kids say, a week from today. I don't, think, I don't think kids say anything about books <laughs> dropping because they don't know what a book Unless is. Unless they physically drop them That's right. from their hands Senior moments. The uh, thank you. for. I, I, I dare say you've never been a Jew of the week before, and so it's our honor to make you at age 71 for the first time a Jew of the week. And now no one has to ask, what are you? That's right. Uh, Mazel tov. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. There comes a day in your life when you want to kick back Straw hat on the porch when you old perhaps Want to gather your thoughts, have a cold one Brag to your grandkids on how life is golden So I'ma light a cigar in the corridor of the crib Pictures on the wall of all the things that I did All the money and fame Eight by tens of the whole rat pack inside of a big frame Colliding with big names that could have made your career stop All that and your man is still here and I'm still hot Wow, I need a moment, y'all. See, I almost felt a teardrop. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. 
This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, everybody, a lot of you have wondered what you can do to stay in touch with us and to, uh, you know, to feel more part of the unorthodox family. We think you're totally part of the family. I have been forgetting to mention that you should be getting the newsletter. Um, thousands already do, and we want to make you uh, one of those thousands. Um, so you can go to bit.ly.com slash unorthodox podcast and sign up there. The other thing you can do is just email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com, and we will add your email to the newsletter. Stephanie writes it. She does. She does She's every week. She's hilarious. She's totally hilarious. It includes extra fun facts, um, tips for living, um, photographs sometimes yep. of dogs, cats, Jews, Jewish dogs, Jewish cats. Yep. Um, the other things you can do, you can rate us on iTunes, which we'd really love, and get your friends to subscribe. Um, we have many, many thousands of regular subscribers. We love all of you. If each of you got one or two other people to subscribe, that would boost us into the stratosphere, and we would just be so, so grateful. So um, get, you know, spouses, uh Lovers, frenemies, frenemy, friends and frenemies. Everyone, just be like, go to iTunes.com, click on Unorthodox, subscribe, and um, you know they'll thank you for it, as you know. So, uh, Bitly.com/slash/UnorthodoxPodcast for the newsletter, and uh, then get us to subscribe. We're also, as you know, on Facebook and the Twitter. See you in cyberspace. Our Gentile of the week is R.J. Hernandez. R.J. Hernandez graduated from college in 2011 and graduated kind of right into the job that a certain kind of college graduate wants more than any other. Mm -hmm. If they've seen The Devil Wears Prada yep. or if they've <laughs> shoplifted magazines throughout their childhood from the Dwayne Reed or the, the Walgreens looking for just that thing to wear. He landed at Vogue where he was an intern where he went by the name Seymour Glass. More on that in a moment. He ended up getting fired. He's written a novel called An Innocent Fashion. Um, and he's here to talk about Cubano Americismo, Vogue magazine, and how one gets fired from Vogue, and just to sort of be our guide to, to all things um, as our Gentile of the Week. Welcome, RJ. Thank you very much. Have you Thanks ever been a Gentile me. of the Week before? Not yet. <laughs> it's my favorite title by far, I think. You're about to peak. This is going to be... <laughs> yeah, what it's you, all downhill from what here. What are you like? You're like 25, 26? 27. 20, I just turned 27. 27. This is... You don't follow him on Instagram? How, how will... How will I mean, you know I'm not on Instagram. How will it be to have peaked at 27? Oh my God. I don't want to talk about it. Whatever. At least you're not one of those people who peaks <laughs> in high school. That's a few days ago. <laughs> So listen, first of all, um, tell us the Vogue story. You, you, sure. Why did you go by a name other than your own and how did you get fired? Those are the two, two things we have to get to. Right. So I'm Cuban-American. I grew up my whole life, as many Cuban-Americans do in Miami, kind of um, straddling you know, an identity as a Hispanic person and as an American, never really knowing kind of where I fell in that. From a young age, I had always had negative associations with my Latino heritage. Uh, my mom was a teacher and never went outright and said that to be Hispanic was a disadvantage, but made it relatively clear to me that um, it was in my best interest to kind of um, stay on a path that I had seen um, traveled only really by like white models like in the media and kind of in the worlds that I was interested in ultimately ending up in. And so I'd always wanted to change my name. So 
Uh, my full name is Ricardo Rolando Jesus Hernandez. It's very difficult to get away from from you know the. Latino Ricardo Hernandez is like, <laughs> you're kind of reading as Spanish. The passing is a little tough. It's when you're, very you know. difficult. But I guess I always looked like I could pass. And so I had this idea in my head that, you know, when I had the opportunity, I would change my name. I didn't know to what, and it wasn't really um, a realistic goal of mine until college when finally I graduated and was entering this new world and like had the opportunity to reinvent myself. And I'd always been a kind of romantic, idealistic person. And so to me, there didn't seem a reason why not to dive into this new experience in New York City where people didn't know me as Ricardo. Ricardo Rolando. Right. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, let me just be something new. And I'd also... So you chose... Seymour Glass, which some of us will know is a character from Salander. Sure, I did. <laughs> and what I love about your story is that like you'd go to Fashion Week and you would call yourself Seymour Glass and it was quite clear that nobody had any idea this was from Salander. Nobody did. I mean, I'm sure like there were people who thought it was an unusual name. I was um, so disappointed because I like to think that sort of, you know, we like to think that fashionistas also have a secret reading life, but in fact, they don't do that. Well, of course, fashion is like any industry. There are intellectuals and there are people that would know J.D. Salinger and have a wide vocabulary in like literature. You have this great name. You choose like the Jewish 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 name. I know. It's so to funny. like pass. In the what's so great about Seymour <laughs> is of course after Seymour. After the fact I realized you know I to me it wasn't. You didn't know how Jewy it was. I I guess I just I'm an artist. I've always appreciated the visual art. I mean very much so like i ended up doing fashion styling and later writing but for the most part throughout college people knew me as a visual person and so I, I loved just the name like without any associations to Salinger or anything I just liked this idea of Seymour Glass I just thought it was so peculiar and also clever for somebody to sort of hide in plain sight behind it well, also you know, the genius yeah. of it is Seymour is one of those English names that became Jewish because all of the assimilationist Jews named their kids what they thought were high Anglo names, like Milton. Like, why is Milton a oh, Jewish first name? name? Right. Why is Milton a Jewish first name? It was actually name? Mendel first. Because, right. Because all of these immigrant first generation Jews were like, I'm going to name my son after the greatest English poet of all time. I'll name him Milton. Sydney, same thing. Sydney, Milton, Seymour. These are English names that right. the Jews took over and then they, they now read as Jewish names so that like Cuban Americans can go to work at Vogue and take the name. To, to Seymour. To me, it was just the fanciest name it in the is, world. It I is a beautiful it was name. Such a so, so hold on. Was there, was there a moment in which you were like sitting back and saying, wow, holy mother, I, I control the media now. <laughs> you know, I, I'm part of this. You just wanted into the Jewish cabal. Isn't right? <laughs> I'm, I'm entitled now. <laughs> Maybe without knowing it. <laughs> so a lot of your early fashion career, and I say early even though you're 27 and this is all still relatively early. <laughs> he's, he's over the hill now. Because um, I'm almost 29. Yeah. So um, oh, speaking of over the hill. Getting there. So you were sort of trying to, you know, affect this like waspy air where, you know, like old, like, you know, you were getting suits made. You sort of were trying to right. adopt this 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 very like high class aristocratic thing. And it seems like a lot of the people who were who came up with you at, and were hired at Vogue were sort of of that cast in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But to me, you're so much more interesting. Someone who you. isn't, you know, doesn't have a famous last name. So do you feel, do you feel looking back like you could have done it under your real name and under your real identity? I think another person that was more comfortable in their own skin could have. I don't think there was anything inherently wrong with the name. And now, 
more than when I started, I feel like there are a lot of examples of designers and editors and people who are kind of um, climbing the ranks that that don't come necessarily from a background of privilege. But I decided ultimately to change the name after my first interview when, I mean, the, the person who interviewed me was perfectly lovely, but I, I just remember her walking towards me. I had seen a couple people through the glass door and thought, there's no way, like I, I'm not going to make it here if I don't change something. And she started asking me questions and some of, I remember she went down a list of names, none of which were familiar to me. Um, and when I looked up a couple of them later, they were like society girls. And it just goes back to this idea that- The Vogue interview is like, can you name these these vapid- if I, if It's we a lineup. Give you, if we give you a lineup of vapid society girls, can you recognize them? I mean, I hate to paint it that way because it's certainly not- all that i i'm a big defender that in the fashion industry there are great ideas if you find them and i feel like some of those ideas do exist within the sphere that we kind of associate with vogue and the superficiality of that but but yeah i mean the the interview does have a at least mine had a social component that because all my life I'd been so insecure about my social background, just... So, all right. But, but look, let's not be too nice to them. They fired you. <laughs> why did you get... Do you have any idea why you were fired? Was it because you started wearing high heels to work, as um, you wrote in your great Paris Review essay? Yeah, well, I, I just thought it was a place where artists went. It was a very naive expectation and kind of coming to this place where everything was very quiet and everybody were black and everybody was from a similar background. And, you know, that that was a hard thing for me. And I think... This was my first job out of college. So my way of rebelling against this very adult, you know, fact, which is this is corporate life in America, which Vogue is a part of, um, was to dress more outlandishly, be more outlandish. I started going out more. I started dressing eccentrically. At one point, they, they told me to, you know, scale back a little bit. I wore short, short shorts to work that in my mind would have been perfectly appropriate <laughs> For a woman to wear, and this was around the time that like androgyny was kind of becoming more trendy. There was an article so... in the Times style <laughs> section a few years ago, maybe it was in the fashion magazine of the Sunday magazine or something, about a fashion scenester who wore pants that were so low cut that you could see his big pubic bush oh out. My of... God. Do you remember? Well, what... they weren't that. <laughs> and it was, and I just remember thinking like, so <laughs> this is what it takes like to that. get mentioned in 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 the fashion sections. Um, so, you know, Fashion Week's about to start. What the heck is Fashion Week? I mean, there's lots of runway shows. Does it really count for anything? Should any of, should anybody care outside the fashion bubble? Um, whether or not you care, it, it does affect what the world looks like. So I think if you're How interested in... How does it affect me? The ideas presented in that sphere ultimately... They filter um, down to Banana Republic, right? Yeah, that's one way to, to look at it. But, I, I mean, there's a concentration of creativity within, you know, the fashion industry that is expressed aesthetically. And so it's not just what people wear, but you see color trends and th like some people who aren't attuned to this won't care and don't care. And that's perfectly fine. But trends happen. And this is one place where new ideas are are kind of put, kind of put out for the world. Yeah. Yeah. So. So listen, you have a panel of Jewish experts here, me, Stephanie, and Leah. We've been certified by the um, Israeli Sephardic rabbinate to answer questions from, from Goyim. What question did you, did you bring for us? So my question was just, I guess I think about Jewish people in the past as having surmounted a lot of obstacles, and I don't know what you would consider to be the major obstacles today. Other Jews. <laughs> well, I think, trying to... I think... Let's each take that in turn. Stephanie? So here's what I think. I think you're right. Like, 
anti-Semitism used to be really like very visible in American society. You know, like we talked about quotas earlier for universities, things like that. Jews were very much a minority. I think Jews have it very good today. But I also think, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, sort of in response to people's questions, if if they're coming for anyone, like if you know if if there's a Trump rally and they're like going against, I don't know whoever they're railing against this week, Jews always sort of have this feeling that like. We're still on the list, right? Like things might be good for us now, but when, whenever we're we're in, an, there's an environment in which any sort of like regime is there's hostility towards any minority group, sure. whether it's you know Muslims or black people or you know the LGBT community. Like we're on that list, so I would say we're relatively secure and, and safe. But we always have the minority mindset of right. you know they're they're coming for us. It doesn't always start with us, but it always ends with us. Liel, related, I would say the inability to really imagine for ourselves what any of this means anymore i think if you read jonathan safin four's new and truly fucking horrendous uh train wreck of a novel Ooh, hot take <laughs> you understand you know here's a person who who had book one about the holocaust book two was about 9-11 and uh, lacking a trauma for book three, he imagined an earthquake that destroys Israel because without some coalescing trauma, there clearly isn't anything that we could do as Jews to create culture. It's not like we have, you know, a religion or a tradition or belief system or anything like that to come around. I think this is why so many of us gravitate to, to frankly, uh, weird shit, to extreme political ends, to all kinds of other cultural appropriations, to use a, a, a popular term these days, uh, because there's this profound disinterest in, in what is truly ours and what is truly our heritage and what should truly, honestly, be our pride. Uh, and there's this need to create or seek outside stimuli, which is, which is dispiriting and, and which is also you know, deeply troubling. Yeah, the way I would put that, I think I agree with Stephanie and Leal. The way that I would put that is I would say whiteness is a great threat to us. You know, we became white about 34 and a half years ago. And since then, it's kind of been all downhill. Like, we're just we're just going to be bland Americans with, you know, like... With, like, you know, young Vogue interns taking names that sound like ours. Yeah, stealing our names. <laughs> and we're going to, like, be wearing baseball caps backwards and a lot of Under Armour gear. Oh, my God. And, um, and then we'll just suck like everyone else. So I think... We'll start I, boating. We'll start... <laughs> Exactly. Clam bakes. Clam bakes. Um, little insignias on our belts. Um, RJ Hernandez, the novel is in innocent fashion. And uh, thank you for being our Gentile of the Week. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Strike a pose. Strike a pose. Oh, 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 oh. Hey J Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Hey, it's time for Mazel Tovs of the Week. Liel. My Mazel Tov, as always, like every week, is to the wonderful paper of record, best newspaper in the world, the New York Times, which this week announced that it was uh, almost cutting down entirely its local coverage, uh, dramatically reducing its coverage of the arts, uh, and using all that spare cash to hire a gender identity editor. So we'll finally figure out if Camp Habunim was right, calling it Chanichol, or not. So good job there, guys, covering the all the stuff that's fit to print. Wow. Dub- doubling down. I, really, I don't feel like that was really a mazel tov, but yeah. okay. Okay, Stephanie? I'm going to go with like a real earnest AF mazel tov. My dad's birthday was uh, was is September 4th. Um, we celebrated this weekend. It was really fun. He's really, really cool. And just wanted to shout out Howie B. Yeah, Howie B. His name's Howard? Yeah. I never, I never even knew that, but that's another great English name that's become a Jewish name. Yeah. From Howard's End to Howard Butnick. Oh, an American, an American tale, um, and my Mazel Tov is to Emma Sokoloff Rubin and Sam Purdy, whose wedding I was privileged to attend, and where all four of my daughters were flower girls. So that was um, that was just a high. That's been like the thing we've been shooting for all summer. Is like if they misbehave, we say, "Do you want to be a flower girl or not?" Like it's it's been a threat. It's been leverage. It's been and it ended up being a, a great. Two questions: Who was the best at it? Oh, I mean, you... who had the most flair? I mean, the most flair, Ellie has a lot of flair, but Anna, you know, a three-year-old flower girl who pulls pulls it off with yeah, a plum is, it's hard to top. Okay. And what are you going to do now that there's like nothing to hold over their heads? How are you going to control them? So now that there's nothing to hold over their heads, they're basically going to go feral again. Like without, we have nothing now. They're like, just like throwing flowers everywhere. What are we going to do? Take away ice cream tonight? <laughs> take away like the 7.30 iPad screen time? Like it's, we got nothing anymore. It's a part in the horror movie when you click the trigger of the, pull the trigger of the gun and you hear that click. <laughs> Exactly. You know, exactly. the ammo, the chamber is empty. There's nothing in there. That's exactly right. We're, we're, if you, if you, listeners, if you have ideas of what leverage we have now, please. Uh, well, see, my kids are young and I'm on vacation. So every day it's the same freaking thing and it works great. Ice cream. You want it? You want it or you good. don't? You want it or you Until don't? Until 6 p.m. That's when you get the ice cream and then you're off to bed immediately because <laughs> I, I have nothing else left. One of our kids, it was Ellie. We once gave her coffee ice cream and it was some high caffeine variety and she didn't sleep for 24 hours. Oh, so amazing. to this day, no coffee ice cream for the kids.
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. It's edited this week by Shoshi Shmulevitz and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision is by Rabbi Alan Sokoloff. He did such a good job at the wedding the other day that he gets the rabbinic supervision. Is he the father of the bride? He's the uncle. He's the nice. uncle of the bride. Kosher slaughtering by Susan Estrich, Roger Ailes' lawyer. I do have to wonder what kind of nice Jewish girl reps Roger Ailes. Our website is tabletmag.com. You can follow us on Facebook or on Le Twitter at tabletmag. Our music is by Golem. And also special shout out this week to WOMR in Provincetown, best community radio station in America. WOMR Womer. Great radio station. Thanks for hosting Leah Leibowitz. We record at the sonically splendid Argo Studios in New York City. Shalom, friends. How many millions of people listen to you? Six million. <laughs> <laughs>